0: And if you look at foundation of a typical corporate social responsibility strategy, one of the key aspects is dialogue with the stakeholders. And the consumers and the consumer associations are critical stakeholders to companies like us, to companies like our customers, the type of producers. And so talking to consumer associations, educating consumers to help them perceive in a way that is more accurate is one of the critical missions that we have. Again, designing a strategy for sustainability for corporate social responsibility means that you also identified with all your stakeholders what topics are important to them, what topics they expect you to tackle in your strategy. This is what is called the materiality index. And in doing a materiality index in talking to our stakeholders, one of the key aspects that they want us as a company to look at is product safety.
1: I would guess that when you hear the word sustainability, your mind immediately goes to protecting the environment. It could be reducing emissions or waste, or using less energy and materials, or producing products that support more sustainable end-of-life scenarios. And all those are incredibly important sustainable practices. But there is another side of sustainability that can sometimes be overlooked. And that would be the concerns of your consumers. Consumers can share their concerns about how much your products cost or where to buy them or even how safe they are, among others. And hygiene producers have a responsibility to include their consumers in the conversation and address their concerns. But how to address those concerns? And making sure consumers are aware that you've addressed them can be a challenge for producers. Luckily, Bostic is here to help. Welcome to Attach to Hygiene, the podcast that enables you to grow your knowledge and influence in the disposable hygiene industry. I'm your host, Jack Hughes. Global Digital Marketing Manager for Bostic's Disposable Hygiene Business Unit. In today's episode, Christoph Morel and Laurie Anne are back to discuss the topic of sustainability and consumer expectations in the hygiene market. We'll start by having them share where the market stands in terms of sustainability, and then we'll go in depth on consumer concerns and how the industry is reacting to those concerns. Joining me today to discuss the topic of CSR and sustainability and then consumer safety, and substances of interest are Christoph Morel and Lorianne Liberlesso. Uh, Lorianne, you are one of our product development chemists here at Bostic. And Christoph, you're our global market manager in charge of sustainable innovation and market insights. So thank you both for coming back to the show.
0: Hello, Jack.
2: Hello.
1: So since we've got a lot to cover today, I want to dive right in and we'll start with talking about the state of sustainability and corporate social responsibility in the market. And Christoph, this is your primary area of expertise, as some of our guests would know. I'm going to start this one with you. Can you explain what issues consumers have with hygiene products when it comes to the environment?
0: Yeah, I think you could look at it two ways. I think you started with what are the, what do consumers have as an issue with these products? I think that's a key one, but a even more important one is what is the real issue that these products have with the environment? And so if you look at the consumer perspective, let's describe an absorbent hygiene product. It's a single use item that is made of plastics, right? And so when you talk single use, when you talk plastic, you're already using words that the consumers start to identify as negative. And so their perspective about single-use plastic items is becoming more and more negative. So that's the the first part. The second part is, indeed, those are single-use items that are made of plastic. So therefore, they actually need a lot of chemical materials to be produced. And if you make a quick math of how many articles are produced each year? I think the uh, the total number is around 500 billion articles per year. So 500 billion articles per year, that's probably around 20, 30 million tons of raw materials that you need to produce these articles. So that's a lot of materials that you need, a lot of raw materials, a lot of resources. And since A lot of these are actually petroleum-based, oil-based, so this is a a lot of resources that we need to take from the Earth, right? And then the second part is that these 500 billion articles, at the end of their use life, which is a few hours, they're thrown away. And they're either – the best option is that they're actually incinerated with energy recovery, but they – Mostly end up in a, in a landfill. And so with these 500 billion articles, you're creating huge amounts of waste, uh, material. And that's a concern as well because, you know, waste has to be treated, has to be, uh, isolated, has to be, uh, and so, and that waste from a hygiene article is actually becoming more and more visible to the consumers, more and more visible to authorities. Up until last year or two years ago, uh, when asked, you know, what the amount of waste coming from absorbent hygiene products in the municipal waste, what was the fraction, sorry, coming from uh, absorbent hygiene products in the municipal waste? My answer would have been around 3%, which is high, but it's still rather small. But a recent study actually has demonstrated that absorbent hygiene waste is making up to 12-13% of the municipal waste. You know, once you the consumers have been able to sort out the plastics, the cardboard, the paper, the glass, the metal, sometimes also the, organ, the, the food waste that they compost, then absorbent hygiene products, and in particular diapers, because they are bigger, are making up to 12-13% of what's what's left. And that's becoming much more visible. So I think, you know, when we try to summarize the issues, I think from an environmental standpoint, the first one is how do we manage the amount of resources that are needed to make all these absorbent hygiene articles, which are very important to society because they help gender equality, they help babies, they, they help improving the health of, of babies uh, and the quality of life of, of elderly people. So they have very good societal um, benefits. But how do we make all these articles? Where do we find the resources is one thing. And what are we going to do with all the waste created by these articles? So these are the two critical environmental issues.
2: Yeah, and I think consumer, and we are also consumer, are more and more I would say, interested or concerned by uh, environmental concern or topics, etc. So waste is uh, one of the parts. What is it made of is a another part. So I think the consumer concern is rising uh regarding this product. And as Christophe said, earlier, perhaps our concern was not on diapers because we had to deal with bigger stuff in terms of uh amount, uh for example packaging or things like that. But with with the fact that people sort even more at home, then the diaper or disposable hygiene product amount or part is becoming Bigger, so more concern.
1: Yeah, it's harder to ignore. You you can't, you can't ignore it when it's making up 12, 13, 15 percent of of municipal waste for sure. And with this increased visibility, the 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 pressure on producers, and as you mentioned, Christoph, the major challenges that are being faced by the industry in regards to sustainability and environmental issues. How is the industry responding?
0: So here, too, I think there are kind of two levels in the response. The, the first one is to tackle this growing concern that the consumers are having, which Lorian was describing. So they still need to sell products to these consumers uh, that are going in the directions where the consumers want to go. So, but on the other hand, these manufacturers are responsible companies, and they also have their corporate social responsibility strategy they they understand the, the issues linked to the products they are making and so that's a corporation they're trying to do the right thing in terms of uh, let's say reducing their uh, reliance on on fossil resources reducing their carbon footprint optimizing their operations etc et and optimizing uh, the product so that let's say the carbon footprint of the finished product is optimized vis-a-vis the function that it provides. And so what we see happening on the market and how it translates in the actual products that are sold on the market is, first of all, I think a, a big push, I would say, towards what would be considered as more uh, sustainable materials. And so in that category, I think producers uh, are putting uh, films or substrates, materials and wovens that are made of uh, natural fibers, such as cotton, for example, or maybe slightly modified natural fibers like viscose. Uh, they're also using more bio-based materials, uh, so using bio-based polymers such as polylactic acids, such as uh, biopolyethylene, for example. And so... Some of them are really putting a lot of marketing claims around the fact that these materials are either coming from plants or reducing a carbon footprint or increasing the content of renewable materials in the diaper. So that's one aspect. Then then there is the, uh, again, there is a kind of a corporate aspect where manufacturers are optimizing their operations you know, making sure that their operations are not creating any waste that would end up in a landfill. They are also optimizing their own carbon footprint by reducing the amount of energy that they need for their operations, by also uh, uh, moving to more renewable sources of electricity, for example. So we see here and there big manufacturers talking about their objectives for reducing their own scope one and two emissions. Some of them are even talking about uh, offsetting their residual emissions. We see um, manufacturers talking about, you know, installing solar panels on their premises, etc. cetera. So, again, there is a lot that goes either in terms of the finished product, but also in terms of how the company is reacting to the environmental challenges that we all see.
1: So... Covered a lot there, as far as the, all the different things that the the industry is doing to respond or trying to do, and, and the different things producers are trying to reduce their footprint, um, whether it be with the products themselves or in their production processes and I know we'll be diving into some of those deeper in future episodes in this series on on sustainability and cSR, so I, I won't give those away, but with that approach. Bostick is an adhesive producer, <laughs> uh, and so in the scope of sustainability, how do we define a sustainable adhesive?
0: So, I, I mean, my answer to that would be to say, well, if we look at our three-pillar strategy, then to me, a sustainable adhesive is, first of all, manufactured responsibly in our plants. A sustainable adhesive is manufactured in constant dialogue with our suppliers, customers, employees, communities, and a sustainable adhesive is there to help our customers, the diaper producers, the Fencare article producers, achieve their own goals for sustainability and create products that are more sustainable. So I would say a sustainable adhesive cannot be defined in itself. It has to be part of an article, it has to have a function and it has to Contribute to a different approach into making the product uh, a different approach that will make it more sustainable. I mean, I'll, I'll just use a, a, a quick example. I mean, we have, for example, the idea that if you reduce your dependency on oil based materials, then you are on the right way to a more sustainable product. So for us, it could mean that. Most of our adhesives are actually oil-based. They are made of hydrocarbons, which are coming from crude oil. So if we move to a more sustainable approach, that would mean that we could reduce the dependency on oil and increase the uh, amount of, let's say, bio-based resources or recycled materials in our adhesives. And that would become a, a more sustainable adhesive. If we do this in isolation and just offer this To keep bonding to a polyethylene film and a polypropylene nonwoven, then the impact of our adhesive is not going to be visible. So it's got to be together with a change in the way that the final article is actually manufactured. So it has to be, let's say a bio-based adhesive, for example, has to be associated with more use of bio-based substrates or, or maybe a change in the, in the design of the product. So again, a, an idea, a, a more sustainable adhesive cannot be by itself. It has to be associated to more changes in the whole particle.
1: That makes sense. Uh, a chub of adhesive or a block of adhesive doesn't really mean a whole lot <laughs> if it's if it's not there to help help up a product perform its, its core function.
0: Yes.
2: And I think also to be sustainable, an, an adhesive has to meet the requirement that we will have tomorrow. We have to be front ahead to the needs in terms of uh, sustainability, of safety. Uh, if we have an adhesive that is okay today, we have to to guarantee and to anticipate the, the needs for for tomorrow.
1: Absolutely, it's not done in a vacuum. In the present, we constantly have to be thinking about the future as well. And, and as you said, what things look like tomorrow and how how adhesives will. We'll support that. And Lorianna, you brought up the idea of safety, and that's really what we want to talk about today. So when most people think of sustainability, they tend to think of the environment for obvious reasons, and and because that's really what people are talking about when they talk about sustainability. But a big part of the Bostick strategy is also focused on dialogue with stakeholders. That includes our suppliers and our customers, the article producers, among other groups. But a big focus is also the consumers of the hygiene products themselves. And this may be a question with an obvious answer, but what is the top expectation that consumers have around hygiene products as it pertains to corporate social responsibility and sustainability?
2: It's an obvious question, but it's true that our consumers expect safe product. And of course, as manufacturer and part of the supply chain, we owe them safe product. We have this as a responsibility. And as you said, uh, agent product in contact with an intimate part of the body, sometimes, uh, with a fragile individual. So the safety is a, is a key. But then we can discuss about what safety means. For example, for, for us and for the manufacturer, it means that it meets the regulations, that the product has been tested, that we did a risk assessment, etc. So by definition, consumers should be convinced just because we know the product are saved. But the consumer is not so easy to convince.
1: No, I think we all know that they, they are not and they they can be very skeptical, they can switch from product to product very easily if there's any concern and obviously we'll we'll dive into some of the work that the industry is doing to to really, as you said, convince them that things are safe. But what what are they looking for when it comes to, to safety and being comfortable with buying a product?
2: Surely, a consumer wants a safe product, but consumer also want to perceive the product as safe. The consumer has to be Happy with a product. As you say, you can uh, buy a product on another and jump jump from a brand to another and it has to deal with emotional and with happiness by buying a a product.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like it really comes back to that perception. Obviously, there's a lot of, a lot of factors there for a consumer to be, to be comfortable. And and as you said, happy about buying a product, but perception, as we talked in your episode on odor and we've talked in some of the other episodes that perception is key and in, in making sure that their consumers perceive the product as safe, even though us industry players know that the product is safe. If they perceive it as unsafe, it doesn't matter how safe the product is. They're going to have questions. They're going to be skeptical and they're going to ultimately refrain from buying the product.
2: Yeah. And to reassure them, we need to provide clear messages and messages that are easy to read that can be uh, used easily by by consumer. And we can see that in other industries, for example, in cosmetic industry, when you buy a product, there is a composition with the inky List. This is not the case for our high market. Or, for example, for food industry, you have a system with NutriScore or even with um, a traffic light type uh, of indication. And... It makes it simple. If it's green, it's good, I can buy. And if it's uh, red, uh, it's not good and I, I can't buy. And uh, for all this field, we see also the use of logos and uh, independent certifications and et cetera. And this is a thing that we, we don't had in our eigen, uh market industry and that is arriving in our, in our market also.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely something we're seeing that Consumers are are really looking for what what's in the product, and I think as you said, it's not something the industry is used to. We we see it in cosmetics, we certainly see it in food, obviously, but not so much in in our industry. But it's something consumers are asking for now, and, and I know in in the United States here we're seeing laws in in states like California and I believe New York now where they're requiring manufacturers to put these the different chemicals and, as you said, composition and makeup of the products on the packaging. I imagine we'll be seeing that many other places, in, including Europe.
2: Yeah, and um, in Europe, there is no regulation on hygiene-disposable products. So people, consumer, may think that manufacturers are absolutely free to do whatever they want. And as we, we spoke about the increase for cosmetic with no composition on diaper bags or on a feminine care product, consumer could think that any ingredient can be used or maybe that the industry is hiding something from them, etc. And... In addition to that, uh we know and we have seen that with the Covid pandemic that consumers don't always trust science or government. They can trust more their friends or magazines or independent associations. All of this context, we have a kind of general fear of chemicals or even chemistry, and this play a role in the perception of the safety of a product.
0: It's interesting what you said, uh, Lauriane, that uh, there is no regulations for baby diapers in, in Europe and consumers would expect us to do whatever we want uh, as an industry. But in fact, there are regulations that apply to diapers already. So it's it's wrong to, to believe that, you know, we are free to do whatever we want.
2: It's true. There are regulations such as the uh, REACH and which regulates a children article, but consumers don't see the regulation and don't know sometimes even that there is a regulation.
1: So it really comes down to that lack of visibility, maybe that lack of clarity on the part of market players, and really, the as we said, the perception that because they're not seeing it, then consumers aren't aware of it. That well, there there must not be much oversight or regulation.
0: And if you look at you know the foundation of a uh Typical corporate social responsibility strategy. One of the key aspects, as we said, also for our Kema and Bostic is dialogue with the stakeholders and the consumers and consumer associations are critical stakeholders to companies like us, to companies like our customers, the type of producers. And so talking to consumer associations, educating consumers to help them perceive in a way that is more accurate. Is one of the critical missions that we have. Again, designing a strategy uh, for sustainability for corporate social responsibility means that you also identified with all your stakeholders what topics are important to them, what topics they, uh, they expect you to, uh, to tackle in your strategy. This is what is called the materiality index. And in doing a materiality index, in talking to our stakeholders, one of the key aspects that they want us as a company to look at is product safety. That's for sure. So again, product safety is a key component of a product design and a good corporate social responsibility and dialogue with consumers and consumer associations is another key component as well.
1: I know that's been one of the challenges in the industry, particularly for some of the players like Bostic that aren't in direct contact with end consumers is, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part to help educate, but we don't necessarily have that direct line to the end consumers as some of the article manufacturers do. So our job is really to try and put information out there and and make the market aware, but really work with the article manufacturers to make sure that we're doing our part to let them know that our products are safe and therefore their products are, are safe and, and regulated, obviously, and, and they know all of that, but supporting them to educate the end consumer as well as some of the, the industry groups out there as well.
2: Yeah, it's important to, to communicate. And uh, the industry organized uh, themselves to work together and to give answer to consumer. So a scientific answer, but also um, made a lot of communication about the safety and the perceived safety. And for example, the the IDANA is an association who work on this topic and who made a lot of effort to give science, for example, with a white paper on exposure-based risk assessment, but also joint effort with other associations in the U.S. or in France, and also, as uh, Christoph mentioned uh, just earlier, educating regulators such as ECA, who is one of the stakeholders.
1: We'll dive into that deeper here in a minute, but I wanted to back up a little, and Laurieann, you mentioned some of the skepticism in the market around chemicals and formulations, particularly on the consumer side, as well as something we've talked about in on your previous episode on odor, as kind of a chemophobia or chemophobia. What examples are we seeing in the market of this skepticism, if you will? And, and do you have any specific instances of this?
2: I think where we see really this chemophobia is probably on headlines on magazine. Um, for example, in France, I will take this example: you have some magazine with a, a very polemic title, making a link between baby. And baby diaper, and also the word toxic, saying that baby diaper can be toxic to the to the baby. Uh, we can also see that on uh, social media, on internet, and we we have seen uh, such, uh, for example, tampons being a stick of death. Or we have seen, uh, for example, a baby rash becoming a baby burn. So we see that on on social media, etc. We see a kind of um, increasing of wording and very. Bad or severe wording regarding uh, chemistry.
0: Yeah, it's true. When you talk about the typical diaper rash as being actually a chemical burn. This is really a a big gap in really understanding the exact phenomenon. And this is, as you said, pushed by a general chemophobia.
1: Christoph, your your example of diaper rash, some extreme diaper rash. That was the example that really stuck out in my mind and that I was thinking of was the benefits of some of these newer products on the market is that you can keep them on your child for longer. You know, They have overnight products, so you're not changing all night. But the risk with that is, and and it comes back to an education issue, I believe, but is parents will leave them on for a long time. And they can cause, you know, as you said, diaper rash. And the longer it's on there, the more exacerbated the diaper rash becomes until it's quite severe or it can become quite severe. And because it's so severe, parents can interpret that or perceive that as more of a chemical issue, a chemical burn, as opposed to what it actually is, which you said is just diaper rash.
0: In the end, is a chemical phenomenon. It's a pH issue. Right. So pH of the skin and pH of the material that's in the diaper. So it's chemistry, but it's, it's uh, fully natural. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Good point. It's a natural chemical issue, not a product chemical issue. So that's a that's a really good point. So what has been the result of this skepticism, this chemophobia, this really awareness around chemicals in the products and the push for consumers to know more?
2: One of the results in this context uh, was that a new wording appeared on our market, and you probably know that it's substances of interest. And this wording, we evaluated, it comes in our market back in 2017 or 2018. What are they, SOI, substance of interest? For sure, we can begin by uh, what they are not. They are not ingredients. They are not deliberately added in our uh, product or in diapers and not easily uh, detectable. But what they are, they are substances that are of interest for the public. And generally, they are contaminants or impurities or trace chemicals. We are speaking about traces, so very small amount. And this warning this, and, and the concern is becoming a global warning. We have seen that for baby care, also for femme care, began also for uh, in, uh, adult incontinence. And the lead is in Europe. Uh, we have more concern and more discussion about it in Europe. But we can see that also in Asia, also in Americas.
1: Yeah, I, I know when we first started working on it, it came from a, a report in France, but we've since seen things come out in I believe Korea and other countries in, in Asia as well as as you said in the Americas. And you mentioned small traces and Christoph I, I really like your example of small traces that we've used in and how we communicate on SOI. So I was wondering if you could touch on, on how we refer to small traces in some of these substances.
0: Yeah, we tried to give a, a reference in order to describe what we mean by small traces. And so the best reference we could come up with is uh, looking at an Olympic swimming pool. And actually, if you add uh, one or two sugar cubes in an Olympic swimming pool, then you end up with a sugar concentration in the pool of around one part per billion, one ppb. And this is the level of concentration that we're talking about in in most cases in the case of substance of interest, even sometimes lower than that parts per trillion, which means a sugar cube in one thousand swimming pools so it, it gives a reference uh, I'm not saying that it means that everything is safe at this concentration level, but it means it gives a reference and the other thing that this image uh, allows us to do in terms of uh, education is to illustrate the concept of uh, exposure to a substance. Because in the end, if you're looking at the swimming pool where this sugar is, then even if, if you have diabetes, you are not at risk because you are not exposed. You are just looking at the swimming pool with the sugar in it. You are not exposed. You would have to drink the water in the pool and you would probably have to drink a lot of the water in the pool in order to actually harm yourself with uh, with the sugar. So the concept of exposure is illustrated by this swimming pool. If you are not exposed, meaning if you are not, let's say, in the pool, then you are safe. And again, then there is a dose issue, and uh, if you are in the pool and if you have diabetes, is the amount of sugar present in the pool enough to harm you or not? That is the dose issue, that the toxicity-level uh, uh, discussion here.
2: No, it's, uh, it's exactly what, what we say with this uh, picture, to have a kind of representation of what it means. And this idea of swimming pool, it's exactly what you say. We don't say uh, that because there is sugar, there is no risk. Uh, we can evaluate the risk. Uh, but even with a risk, we have to also evaluate uh, the exposure. And it's true to admit that the industry in, is struggling with a science uh, because it's not easy to measure these so small traces. So even analytical methods are, are not always developed to have accurate results at PPB or PPT level. So we have challenges with, uh, with science and we have also challenges with the concept of perceived safety. And the difference between the risk and exposure, et cetera, there is a lot of science in it. It's not always too easy to convince with that because it may be difficult to go through the emotional journeys that bring a consumer to perceive the product as safe. And that's why the industry made a lot of work to make analysis, but also to give answer to cons- consumers.
1: And how has the industry done that?
2: In various ways. Uh, there is no only one answer to to that, but I think I can say that all industry increased transparency. We have seen some brands uh, sharing analytical reports, test reports on the internet, on their website, for example. Some brands created some sub-brands with a value proposition of natural or free of chemicals or with 0% of uh, this kind of, of things. So specific sub-brands, uh, to, to increase the perceived safety. And also, as we have seen in other industry, manufacturers seek the approval of independent labeling system that will provide the consumers the clarity that, that they need, that they require a kind Kind of traffic light, as we have seen earlier, with a, if there is a label, uh, label I can buy because the product is safe. If there is no label, I don't know, and perhaps I, w- I will not buy. And on our market, we have seen EU flower logos, eco label one, uh, or Ecotex, for example. We have seen that our market is more and more uh, seeking the approval of independent labelling like that.
0: Which is interesting and relates to what you said initially, that there is no specific regulation for BB diapers. For example, Ecotex as a label is designed for textile. So it kind of applies to diapers, but in the end it does not. And But it just reassures consumers that the product has been evaluated in the frame of an existing label.
2: An independent
0: label. An independent, indeed.
2: Another way to react, we, we spoke about that already with Edana. Um, so another way to react uh, is to work through association and associations enable to give a united front and it also enable to have a voice independent from the brand and also to have a dialogue with, uh, with authorities. And we have seen different associations having different approaches. For example, the BAHP in the US tried to streamline the vocabulary so that everybody is on the same page and use the same language. The eDANA approach in Europe was to publish a self-regulation via a stewardship program for for diapers. And so they, um, uh, they edited a list of SOIs to be sure we all speak about the same categories of molecules. They also gave a threshold and test method in order to try to harmonize and standardize the science and the communication around this topic. And they also have written some white paper on exposure-based risk assessment, for example, or these kind of things to to give some science available.
1: So it's clear the industry is reacting and doing a lot to help, as you said, change the perception, reassure consumers, and just get the entire industry, all the players on the same page as far as language and approach, and as you said, really having that united front. But there is still skepticism in the market, particularly on the consumer side. So there's still some trust to be rebuilt overall. So, what is the industry actually doing, and what challenges are they facing when it comes to regaining that trust?
2: Regain trust. The industry used um, different strategies, so giving science and white paper and exposure, and also communicate and try to to educate about what a detection means, what is the risk linked to that, or what is the um, exposure. And all of this with um, an an open discussion with all stakeholders and also discussion with authorities and with ECA, etc.
0: And I was thinking of, you know, what what should the industry do uh, to regain trust? (laughs) I think I had one answer, but that's not really a a good one. That's basically to avoid bad publicity, right? So I think... (laughs) One way to regain trust is to make sure that, uh, we don't get those headlines anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that, yeah.
1: Maybe not appreciated by our audience.
0: No, nobody, but nobody, that's, that's what they want. I mean, uh, again, it's interesting you were saying that they would like to explain to the consumer, but, uh, in the end, what the guy said in a forum, the guy said, we would rather not have to explain then explain yeah so yeah so even if you know even if edana has maximum concentration of substances the perspective is that no detect is the only solution no detect because they'd rather have no detect than explain presence
2: and if we have no detect, then um, we don't have to explain the risk and exposure, etc. cetera. Um, yes. a detection is a kind of a beginning of any explanation. If we have no detect, it means that with available current testing method, we don't detect um, the substance. So it means that we are probably not exposed to any risk. Right.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of short view because yeah, you, you know that maybe in one year they will have detect because the method will have improved. But, uh, in the end, if the choice is made of explaining to the consumer or just making sure that there is no issue, then yeah, no detect is just they want preferred, so they don't they don't have to go into the discussion of yeah there is a carcinogenic substance here, but it's so low in concentration that it's safe, but it's not a risk, so they rather we didn't detect any carcinogenic substance. That's easier to explain.
1: Would you say that? their approach is also the approach of the rest of the players in the market, or at least the major ones?
2: Yeah, I think this is the case. Um, every manufacturer, what they prefer is not to have any any substances in their products that we can't detect, and if they, if we can't detect it, it means that it's uh, at very low concentration, and then we have no discussion uh, needed about risk and, and assessment and mm-hmm. exposure. We can say... Each customer are requesting something on SOI has the same ID, I would say.
1: So there's at least some consistency there from the customer standpoint.
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: So as a supplier to article manufacturers who are, are doing their own work to reassure the public and their consumers regarding any concerns for products or substances, how is Bostik helping support those article producers when it comes to SOIs or consumer trust?
2: First of all, uh, I have to say that BOSIC is really involved in this topic. It's a topic that we jumped into it very early. Already in 2017, we we had a new project dealing with SOI and uh, beginning with understanding of SOI. What is it? What it can come from? Uh, What is the chemistry? Etc. Then we created uh, an expert group global with experts from uh, all the continents and experts coming from the product development, but also from the analytical world, because we have seen that SOI is very linked to analytical and to what we can measure or not. So this group was already created in 2018. And then the same year, uh, later in the year, we created what we called an SOI steering committee in order that the, the science and the knowledge that was created by the SOI expert group was not just a topic for a group of experts, but was put uh, on the top management and to spread it in all our organization. So with this steering committee, we engage each individual and we engage each managers. And so today, with all of this, SOI is part of our engagement and is a key parameter in our innovation process. With that in mind, we increase, we hope and we are sure we increase transparency, we increase project safety perception, and it's part of our corporate social responsibility to participate, to build trust and to keep this topic top in mind internally.
1: Yeah, and I would certainly say we succeeded there. You know, we had several internal <laughs> trainings on it for the wider Bostic disposable hygiene team. You know, we were also very involved in creating materials and educational information about it to to educate our team and and our customers about it, as well as Christoph, you hosted a webinar we had we had several other pieces of information that we were putting out there as well just to make sure that not only our team but the market itself was educated on this topic.
0: Yeah, it was important also that we brought this also to our supplier base because, you know, th- this is really a hygiene market uh, requirements and, you know, Bostic is delivering adhesives to this market, but also to many other markets. And when you go down the supply chain to our suppliers, their involvement in Hygiene is much more limited, and so we really needed to uh, educate them and making sure that we brought to them the the expectation and the strong requirements of the of the hygiene market as well
1: yeah that's a really great point, and you know not only did we have to work forward to to help educate and and work with our consumers, the article manufacturers. But yeah, a lot of work to educate backwards and inform our suppliers about the needs of our market, which we're evolving and continue to evolve.
2: Yeah. Also, by by doing this with customer and suppliers, we also meet our objective of cultivating conversation on this topic.
1: That's a great point, Lauriane, And Perhaps we'll, we'll wrap up on this. How does all this work on SOI, this communication on SOI, really fit into our corporate CSR strategy?
2: that totally fit with our uh, global corporate sustainability strategy. To deliver a safer product or perceived safer, we are to have uh, the, the good product and the good proposal for tomorrow.
0: Yeah, as you said, I mean, the, the first aspect of delivering safe product is part of our innovation strategy. This is part of our DNA. We are part of a market that is looking at uh, product safety very thoroughly. And we have to, uh, in order to, to participate, we have to deliver a safe product. The second aspect of perceived safety and making sure that, you know, we deliver to our Customers, the level of information that they require in order to demonstrate that their products are safe is also part of our CSR strategy through the increased dialogue with stakeholders. So I do make a difference between delivering safe products, which is our day-to-day task, but also participate into the perceived safety approach and also regaining the trust of the consumers, which we participate through that continuous dialogue with uh, our customers, with associations like Edana, with our suppliers in order to make sure that the consumer expectations from the hygiene market are understood and, uh, and well taken into account.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode. In the coming weeks, we'll be touching on other aspects of sustainability in the disposable hygiene market with a few other guests from within Bostick. Attached to Hygiene is brought to you by Bostic and is hosted by me, Jack Hughes. It is produced and edited by me with the help of Paul Andrews, Michelle Tokovitz, Emery Churnis, and Nikki Ackerman at Queen Onion Creative. The theme music is by Jonathan Boyle. You can follow Bostic for more hygiene industry insights on LinkedIn at Disposable Hygiene Adhesives. Or email us with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes at hygiene at Bostic.com. That's H Y G I B N E at Bostic.com. We'd also like to extend a special thank you to our guests, Lorianne Libreso and Christoph Morel. You can find both Lorianne and Christoph on LinkedIn or you can feel free to address any emails to them directly at the hygieneatbostick.com email address I just mentioned. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and share us with a friend or colleague. You can listen to Attach to Hygiene on our website or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.